At IKEA, your dream home is a blue bag away. No matter the size of your space or budget, we've got everything you need to turn your dreams into reality. And now with new lower prices on hundreds of our most popular products, bringing the dream home is even easier. Like the gray Strandom wing chair, was $369, now $299. And the IKEA Plus 365 nine-piece cookware set was $129.99, now $89.99. And hundreds more. Shop new lower prices at ikea-usa.com today. Hello and welcome to episode two of Out with Susie Ruffle. If you haven't listened to episode one, why not go back and start there? It is with the brilliant Dustin Lance Black, screenwriter, Oscar winner, activist, um, father, husband, all around wonderful man. I had a, a joy talking to him and I was blown away by the amount of you that got in touch with me to say how much you enjoyed it. Uh, oh, I was so moved. Um, I got so many tweets and Instagram posts and messages and lots of lovely reviews on Apple. I was very chuffed um, to find out that I was in the iNewspaper with the podcast this week as the best things to listen to over Easter. And it's also uh, getting a little plug in the Guardian guide this weekend as well. So um, yeah, really, really delighted that so many of you have liked it. And thanks for being here. So thank you for sharing it and thank you for coming back. You're here listening to episode two. Yeah, it's been a great week um, for me with the podcast. I mean, a tricky week in lots of other ways. I'm still, like most of you, I imagine, in lockdown. So we're still only going out sort of once a day to do a little bit of exercise and only going to the shops once a week. Uh, I found great pleasure in doing some flowers and plants on my balcony. It's given me a little bit of joy at the minute. It's very, very nice to be able to sit out there in the sun. I feel very grateful for some outside space whilst uh, whilst all this is going on. Now, at the end of the last episode, I asked listeners to email in and tell me their stories. Thank you so much to everyone who did, and I promise I'm going to try and get through as many of them as possible before the end of the series. But please do keep them coming in. You can get in touch at hello at outwithsusieruffle.com. So I'm going to share one of these stories with you. Uh, it's from Bryony, whose um, surname is going to remain anonymous. She uh, sent me this great article. I'm going to—I've chosen some of my favourite bits from it to share with you. And uh, thank you, Bryony, for sending it in, and thank you for letting me read it. It's called uh, "Growing Up Gay Before It Was Cool." It's Pride Month, and the Sainsbury's logo is enveloped by a rainbow flag. EastEnders characters eagerly dress up for the Pride Parade. Marks and Spencers invent an LGBT sandwich which has the best filling, I might add. This is incredible to me, that people are actually interested. When I was growing up gay, specifically a lesbian, it meant being invisible, or even worse, being vilified. I just accepted this as normal. I didn't question society's unwritten rules about how gay people were viewed and treated. If the word lesbian was even uttered, like a deafening gunshot fired into the atmosphere, causing time to stand still until the shock waves of disgust descended. I felt tense and ashamed. You learn never to reveal the truth. You become an expert at changing the subject. No one notices. It's a secret I've kept with exacting precision, securely bolted into a vault deep down, only ever to be released in my most private protected moments so I could show it the light and let it breathe for a while and yet despite all of this it was a word I was happy to own 
My university housemate says her brother wants to meet me because he wants to see a lesbian. I'm reduced to a sexualized object with no face or feeling. She's smiling at me. Do you know how much shame and loathing that causes me? A trusted friend tells us, me and my then girlfriend, that her dad warned her to mind her tush when she sees us. She's laughing. She wants us to laugh too. Do you know how hurtful and offensive that is? Are we just a joke? The jokes about lesbians in comfortable shoes said to me by straight men wearing comfortable shoes become tiresome. Excuse me, but have you ever tried walking on pinpoints all night? I laugh along, but I disguise my pain too well. I'm so sorry to insult you, but I don't find you funny. You're undermining the courage I had to rally to stand here and to be who I really am. But it's okay now, because it's cool to be gay. The secret that I went great lengths to hide becomes a sacred part of you, only ever to be revealed to those who truly deserve it and respect it. But it's okay now because big business supports us. It's disconcerting to suddenly be wheeled to the centre of the stage on the whim of corporate giants wanting to make money out of you, having been trained your whole life to watch from the sidelines. I'm in the glare of the spotlight, but I'm anxiously waiting for my cue from those directing in the wings. How will the audience react? Is it safe here? Don't get me wrong, I'm relieved and deeply moved that society's attitude in the UK are changing. But look beyond the mass facade of all these companies exploiting LGBTQ people. Look somewhere over the rainbow and see the real individuals that have fought and suffered to exist there. I live a peaceful life now. I'm wary of living in fear's shadow. I can let my heart sing its natural song for the good souls in my life, however they identify. I can walk out of my front door in my wedged heels like Kelvin McAllister and declare I'm not ashamed anymore. Do you hear me? I'm not ashamed anymore and I'm not going home alone. So that was from Bryony. Um, I really hope you enjoyed it. I loved reading it. Uh, and Bryony wrote that last year for Pride, sort of her reaction to Pride. And so it was lovely to be able to share that. That's the thing about this podcast. I really want people to feel like it belongs to them as well. It's, it's obviously... I'm here fronting it. But if you want to share something, get in touch with me. I, I really want to hear from, from anyone that wants to share their story. I also had a lovely message from Ellie. Let's call you Ellie G, just in case you don't want me to, to put your surname out. And she decided to come out on Facebook with a cake, a rainbow cake that just says, I'm gay on it. And um, she said, it's not a grand coming out story. It's very plain and simple. But the amount of likes she got and the feedback that she got from her friends uh, reminded her how accepted she was and that she's in a community that she really, that she was really chuffed about. And so thank you for sending that in, Ellie. I was delighted to see that cake and it looks delicious. So um, on with the show, on with today's interview. Today we have another fantastic guest, someone who I, I guess is, is an activist. Um, yeah, you can definitely call Ruth an activist. It's Baroness Ruth Hunt. For those that are not from the UK, a Baroness is someone that is invited to become part of the House of Lords. And so Ruth worked for 12 years at Stonewall, working her way through policy and public affairs uh, to Deputy Chief Executive, all the way to the CEO of Stonewall, which is the UK's biggest LGBT charity. 
we talk about lots of things. We talk about her growing up. We talk about her faith and how she feels being a Christian that's also gay. I think that's a really important thing to discuss and to talk about. You'll hear at the beginning of the interview that I'm very excited and I'm talking very, very quickly. Um, I'm quite new to interviewing people, so um, I'm sure that will improve with time. In this episode, we mentioned something called Section 28. For those of you that don't know what it is, Section 28 was something that the Conservative government put in place. It's sort of a vaguely worded law that prohibited local authorities and schools from promoting homosexual lifestyles. And it prevented councils from funding much needed lesbian and gay initiatives. It also meant that schools, teachers couldn't be out. They could risk losing their jobs. It was a very scary time. So it was put in place in 1988 and it stayed in place until 2003. And I mean, it's an important part of queer history. And I think it's, I think a lot of shame has come from there. I think certainly I was growing up in a time when, you know, teachers couldn't come out or couldn't be themselves or people were losing their jobs. And I think, you know, that sort of stuff sticks with people. And there's lots of people that are, are living now who, who lived through it or were affected by it. And so we mentioned that a little bit, just so you know what that is in case you're not from the UK or in case you haven't heard of it before. Uh, but let's let's go to my chat with Ruth. I loved chatting to her. Thanks again to my friend Faye Davies, who put me in touch with Ruth. Uh, I've known Ruth for a number of years, actually. I, um, I've marched with her and the Stonewall Gang at Pride for the last few years. And every year I put on a comedy gig for Stonewall with the help of Diva magazine uh, to raise funds. And we've been doing that for the last few years. And we always have an outrageously good lineup of queer women. Last year it included Jen Brister and Hannah Gadsby. I, I'm delighted to always support Stonewall. Ruth's no longer at Stonewall, but we talk a lot about her, her life in activism. And I thoroughly enjoyed talking to her. So let's go to that conversation now with Baroness Ruth Hunt. At the age of 34, Ruth Hunt became the CEO of Stonewall, Europe's largest LGBT equality charity, which made her one of the youngest CEOs in the country. In her 14 years at Stonewall, Ruth worked her way up through policy and campaigning, during which time the UK took huge steps towards equality for LGBT people. Legislative landmarks included equal marriage and equal adoption rights for same-sex couples and a public consultation on the reform of the Gender Recognition Act. And, maybe most importantly, in 2019... You were voted number one on the independent world pride power list. Ruth, thank you so much for coming on the show. Um, first question, and it's what everyone's wondering, do you win anything when you become the number one gay? No. Nothing? It's really disappointing because you know that when you're the number one gay, you're never going to be that again. Right. And so that, at 39, was my height of gay power. And what did you do with that power? I became a baroness. Oh, I mean, so impressive. So at 39, you became the youngest crossbench peer mm -hmm. so in the house of lords you're you're known as baroness ruth hunt of bethnal green i am um how would you describe yourself uh ruth still ruth just still ruth yeah, so so do i have to call you baroness no not at all there's a lot of um there's a lot of miladies so you walk around love and, it and everybody's like miladi miladi but does that not m'lady. isn't that quite nice in a way because you feel like you're in gentleman jack a little but it takes me a while to work out they're talking to me <laughs> i don't think I don't think I've been called a lady ever. Then I think, I'm sort of waiting for Sir Madam. Are they ironic? <laughs> are they taking the mick? Why are they calling me my lady? How am I supposed to respond? How do I make sure I don't get used to this? In which case I go, thank you so much. Could I have a cup of tea? That's really kind of you. And, and, and obviously I make a real ass of myself and, and don't cope with it very well. So 
How scared were you the first time you went into the House of Lords? I'm scared every time I go into the House of Lords. How often do you go? I go about twice, three times a week at the moment. Wow, yeah. that's quite a lot. Because uh, I've been in, into the House of Commons and the House of Lords to have a look round, and it's all very... Um, there's lots of bowing, isn't there? Yeah, there's people a lot bowing, of people very dressed up. They, the guys that, that oh, I the mean, doorkeepers, the door. Oh, so the door bouncers, the doorkeepers are amazing. So they're guys who have to wear tails, yeah, all the time, and they ostensibly keep the doors, but they run the whole chamber and are all ex-military. Like they are completely hardcore. Like, and when they're in the chamber, don't they have a sword? No. Is that in the House of Commons? Possibly, I don't know. I've never right, seen okay. any sword. I saw a sword. Okay. Well, if um, you say you saw a sword, Susie, I'm gonna, I'm gonna go with that. Thank you, my lady. No worries. So. I'm sort of thinking we should start at the very beginning. Mm-hmm. I mean, in the words of Maria from The Sound of Music, it's a very good place to start. You were born in Cardiff, mm-hmm. 1980. What were you like as a child? Um, I was quite sensitive and quite serious and quite booky. Mm-hmm. Um, so I read vociferously, loved my stories, and me and my brother played and played and played. And we did lots of Lego. We had loads of Lego growing up. And we did lots of games, but our homework was really important. So we had desks in our room from two. Do you know what I mean? Wow. Three. So your parents were quite strict with... It wasn't... It, it didn't feel strict. It felt like you do not waste an opportunity. And you are... You know, my parents had different educations. My mum was a nurse and, and then went into higher education when we were born. My dad never went to university. He trained as an architect, as an apprentice and kind of climbed Oh, away. wow. So their attitude was you do not waste an opportunity and, you know, you work hard and you be the very best you can be. So that was kind of built into the, the structure. So it didn't feel draconian. It just felt Sunday afternoon to do your homework. That's what we do. Um, so, I love that. Yeah, so we worked very hard, never skipped school or anything like that. And I was really interested because I've seen you speak quite a lot at sort of events or is rally the right word sure but you're an excellent public speaker and I always assumed that it was because you had your notes in front of you and you were sort of reading a speech but I then found out that you're quite severely dyslexic Mm. like me Mm. so when you're giving all those speeches is that just off the cuff yeah pretty much I need to tell you most of the comedians in the UK do not have the improvisational skills that you have. <laughs> you should know that. That's reassuring. <laughs> What's weird about the House of Lords is you have to write it down. Uh, so I find that very difficult to read it out. Uh, I, I, I find it much easier to feel the room, know what's going on. So I know I know what I need to get across. Yes. I know where I'm going and what three messages need to land. You know. Okay. I'm sure you have a similar technique as a comedian I don't know I can't even imagine the complexity about being a comedian oh well, it's not complex I get up I piss about yeah, they laugh yeah. basically with comedy for me is uh, if it didn't work out I wouldn't have anything else to do so it just has to work <laughs> so <laughs> so having that sort of upbringing that was very centred around education mm. when did you realise that you were dyslexic because I'm severely dyslexic school for me was a trial I hated it I felt like I was so stupid I felt like the dyslexia stopped me in every lesson it wasn't just English because you have to read in science and you you know understanding formulas and things in maths I couldn't get my head around it at all so you're obviously someone that's super bright did you realize it was when I was young it wasn't really talked about in Mm. so there were lots more adjustments made we wouldn't necessarily associate with dyslexia so it wasn't like you're dyslexic and therefore Mm -hmm. it was much more about use much more colored pens let's take a bit more time on this okay so I found science really difficult but mental maths I'm very good at Mm -hmm. GCSE maths writing stuff down I couldn't do so I did my maths GCSE a year early and then started A-level Very maths impressive. and couldn't do it because I didn't understand the little symbols. Like yeah. I couldn't, I couldn't understand what 
any of those little symbols meant and I couldn't translate them and therefore that was the end of maths. Do you know what I mean? Yes. So, so there, it was much more like that. But when I went to university, it was diagnosed. Oh, I properly. see. So I was diagnosed as a kid, but in a very Welsh way, which is like, all right, then carry on, don't worry. <laughs> Try a red felt pen. Um, whereas in university, because of the way Oxford courses are structured, in that you have eight weeks where you do four novels a week, two essays, translations, my tutorials were amazing like I could give first class content and just talk and make up new stuff and see links mainly because I couldn't have never read the secondary criticism so I didn't read the secondary crit this is a bit geeky but didn't no, read I the like secondary it. crit because I was too busy being a student escaping just by the skin of my teeth getting an essay in that was very poorly structured, but in the tutorial I was like, and this is clearly a metaphor for the end of the world. And what the Bible would be saying here about Dickens is that what that basically links is to Blake. And if we and, and my tutors were like, how can you have this amazing ability to connect quite disparate things that critics don't connect? But you can't get it on the paper. And then your essay is this turgid mess of nothing. So that's when it was like, let's talk about this properly and work out how your brain works. Okay, so you, you mentioned then, you brought God into the mix quite early doors then, about what the Bible would think. Oh, just because you can't do English at Oxford without the Bible. Really? Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I know that you had... Forget my belief, like, you just can't... Right, good to English know. English literature at Oxford is white and English. Like, okay. Like, need... So, your, your family are Catholic, is that right? They were when we were kids. Right, okay. Um, I think they're not that bothered these days. Okay. Um, so when I was conceived, they were definitely Catholic. And when Tom was conceived, he was... Right, okay. And we went to Catholic school. Yes, um, so and, did I. Yeah, and loved it and had a really good time I mean and it was all about singing so every Friday afternoon the whole school got together and sang and oh, we sang that's just Welsh though isn't yeah, it yeah exactly so, so beautifully Welsh you know you grow up singing beautiful hymns collectively how can you not and then going up into the mountains I mean I don't mean to be too twee about it but I how mean, could you not believe in God with that we, do you know what I mean to immediately go to Wales <laughs> yeah um, you then went on to did you go to a secondary school that was Catholic? No, I went to a little secondary school near where I, where I lived, didn't like it, then got negotiated a scholarship to a little independent school. Ne sorry, how do you negotiate a scholarship? Well, my mum and dad didn't believe in private education. OK. Obviously. Sure. So I went to an exhibition. Um, and sorry, how old are you when you go into an exhibition? I don't know, 12, 13. OK. And there's this little rugby school in Wales that only took, really took boys who played rugby, who were a bit. Bit, okay. Not the sharpest. Um, and uh, they loved me and they went, yes, come and get our GCSE scores up. So I went to a little school called New College School in Cardiff. And so how many girls were there? Not enough for a netball team. Yeah, so so being gay in a school where there weren't enough girls to be of a netball team was a limiting experience, if Sure. Yeah. So were you... Did you align yourself more with the boys? Were you more friendly with the boys or were you... It was more friendly with the girls in the upper years, mm -hmm. um, which is a trait that I've continued for all of my adult life, you know, so... I like the really cool girls in the fifth form. Um, <laughs> and it was a good school. And then we moved to Birmingham when I was 16. So then I went to a big all-girls grammar school. Right. And that was a whole different thing. So I um, I watched a speech of yours online um, when you were talking about coming out and you said that you told your parents when you were 13. Is that right? Yeah. That's very brave. Was there a moment that you realised that you were different? Yeah, absolutely. Well, that was 11, 12. Right. Easily... And was it like um, a specific moment for you? So for me, I remember I was in French, a girl leant over and I looked at her bum and then I remember realising that all the other boys were looking at her bum and literally I went, oh, fuck. 
Like I, I have, it's a distinct moment where I remember really noticing a girl for the first time. Well, I, I remember Gemma sure well um and we were on late book duty so i was 12 then and i used to just think she was amazing i mean she's straight as they come bless her but she was always so lovely to me and we did duke of edinburgh together and shared a tent um very exciting nothing happened of course um, but i really wished it had um so i think i was always much more interested in girls much more concerned about girls much more um interested in what they were doing or how they were doing it and boys all seemed very alike I couldn't really differentiate between them from a boyfriend point of view. Okay, you know what I mean? I was sure. a bit like, yes, you all seem generic and lovely, but yep. not, not that interesting. Okay. Um, quite cool to hang out with, I guess, mm-hmm. and you like Nirvana and, you know, so all that kind of <laughs> stuff. But not really kind of, I can see you're attractive. Whereas all my girl who were friends were really thinking much more sexually about boys then, whereas I was just thinking about kissing girls quite a lot. Yeah. Um, but I was reading. So I was also reading. And in my house, we had Orange is Not the Only Fruit and uh, Joy of Sex 1976. So I'm not saying that made me a lesbian, but certainly right. help encourage any heterosexual tendencies. And so were your parents aware that you were looking at those books? Yeah, 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 yeah. Nothing was ever closed off. Right. And I went to the library and just read everything. Um, so I probably didn't have the words for it. But what was really interesting at that stage is that all the other kids at school thought I was gay. So they were all saying it and gossiping about it. And girls would stop talking to me because they thought that I fancied them. So I remember yeah, this one girl oh, was like, I, I can't that. talk to you because uh, so-and-so says you fancy me. And I'm like, but I really don't. Um, no, I fancy Gemma. <laughs> yeah, I fancy Gemma and the fifth form girls who are really cool. Like, Do you know what I mean? So, so the, the kind of couple of girls in my class, there was a real anxiety and paranoia, but I don't think I was aware of it. I got much more aware of it at 16. But I went to gay bar. There was a gay bar in Cardiff that opened next door to the school. And the, the parents were outraged. So this is 92, 93. OK, so Section 28 oh, yeah, 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 is in that. full swing. So Section 28 in full swing, there's a gay bar that's open next door to this mainly boys' rugby school, right? OK. So everybody was really anxious about this. Um, you know, what does it mean and how can we protect the children? And, of course, that all has an impact on you when you grow up. Of course, totally. of course that does. And, I mean, the mad thing is, is it's still happening now with the no outsiders. Yeah. So, so I went to this gay bar... Um, Sorry, how old? 13. Thought I could get away. But did you think you'd get in? Yeah, but I did because nobody was going to the gay bar in Cardiff on Butte Terrace. So there was no one in there? There was no one in there. But Other I than went, like the guy behind the I bar. I went at four o'clock, do you know what I mean? So I went at four o'clock expecting to meet the lesbians. All of the lesbians. You know, I'd packed a plaid shirt and jeans in my bag. Oh, Ruth. And I went and played pool on my own. And um, didn't meet a single girlfriend, and that was really disappointing. Like I, th- like I can feel the disappointment that at that moment I did not meet someone who was going to do kissing with me. So it was pretty painful. And you said to your mum and dad, I, "I think I fancy girls." I think I fancy girls. Yeah, I would never have used the word lesbian or gay at that stage. No, I didn't use the word lesbian in front of my mum until last year, probably five years ago. <laughs> yeah, because I think the my mum, my mum had like a, she could say like, "My daughter's gay." But she has quite a bristling yeah. to the word lesbian. So I didn't, I, did, I mean, I certainly said I think I fancy girls. But I had a boyfriend who was head boy and I was head girl, so that felt quite organised <laughs> and efficient. 
<laughs> Brilliant. And you yeah. both get really good grades, so that's yeah. nice. Yeah, and so we were doing really we study well together. Well. Yeah, and it just didn't, it wasn't right. You know, of course it wasn't right. No, of course. But, but I was, I think what they call it now is um, engaging in high-risk taking behaviour. So it, nowadays there's youth groups, and if I went along to a youth group and they'd say, are you going to alcoholic establishments? And I'd go, yes. Are you drinking? Yes. Are you smoking? Yes. Okay. Are you engaging in sex to see if you like it and deciding that you don't because it's quite boring? Yes, you know. Right, yeah. So okay. there was. So I was just very um, bored of the whole thing and just kind okay. of interested. And all I really wanted to do was kiss girls. And so then you went to Birmingham. This, this Birmingham sixth form. There was presumably loads of girls. Oh, loads of girls. So many girls. So many girls and more than one bar and a whole street in Birmingham. There's a whole street of gay bars. So I'd gone from this little one. Okay, amazing. <laughs> um, to this whole street. I also at that stage started writing articles for Diva magazine. At 16? Yeah, so was getting a cheque for £400 an article, which I... I mean, I, I don't think they're paying that now. Not, right? <laughs> so, so I'd get £400, this cheque that I had to get, because mum, mum and dad were very worried about me, you know. they. But did they know you were writing for Diva? No, not at this stage. Okay. So I was getting 400 quid that was going to my little instant saver Abbey National Bank account that normally had 20 quid in you know what I mean (laughs) so I had you were loaded I was loaded um and we lived really far away from my school so I had to do a long commute there and back so really enjoyed the gay scene in Birmingham and enjoyed lots of women at at uh, my school and so were you sort of quite visibly gay very much so when I got to Birmingham so So when I got to Birmingham at 16 I was like I've been out for years and this is my lesbian identity and I'm so relaxed about it like so so whereas 13 to 16 I'd been a bit more cautious Mm. at 16 I implied that I was basically a veteran sure my my gay age was like 20 yeah Um, okay so I was the kind of authority because I remember not long after I came out my mum said are you gonna cut your hair and start wearing a shirt and I said, no, and then immediately did. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I got my hair cut, I did all that. I did all that and was very open. You were not sort of scared of being picked on at school or you were... Or was there any of that? There was some. But I kind of thought, well, we're in sixth form now and we don't wear uniform, so obviously everybody's going to be much more mature. I mean, it certainly wasn't as... Um... You were so grown up. You sound like you were grown up at, like, four. Well, part, part of what made me grown up, and I don't... You know, this is a joyful podcast, is that my aunt died when I was 12. Right, so OK. So she was uh, my mum's sister, and she died in childbirth. So oh, there were three God. little kids under five with no mum, and they became very much part of our lives. So that was, it did have quite a... An impact. An impact. Yeah. So 16 in Birmingham... Yeah. I felt like, yeah. And I wasn't as bright in, as the other girls in this very kind of selective grammar school, state-run grammar school. But really So were so. you quite surprised by that? A little, yes. Because obviously you'd been head girl, the bright yeah, yeah, sparker. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, then... and then suddenly I was a little bit maverick. So I was more, <laughs> um, yeah, I was a bit more maverick. And I didn't really care about the cliques or the gangs because they'd all developed from the age of 11. You know, you had the kind of rugby girls. And, and also if you're, you're going to try and get into a gay bar after school... People not talking to you at lunchtime doesn't no, really matter. Yeah, exactly. Because there's, so, I've got other things yeah, on. It just didn't matter. And so, I, I, you know, when I remember we did the general election in 97. There were two, 97 was a big year. 
um, because we had the general election where I was a candidate and one of the other, you know, in, not in a candidate in the election, in the school elections. Yeah, school I mean, elections, I, thought, school elections. I, I did think, I mean, and I know that you do guys, things young, but I feel like I would have found that one out. One of the other guys said, you know, HIV is the, is the cause, AIDS is the cure, you know. So there was there was homophobia in that. and, and I, Oh, God. And I just fronted that out. But the other thing that happened in that year is that Channel 4 did a whole night of coming out episodes stuff around Ellen's coming out episode. Yes, the puppy so episode. So it was, it was four hours and Sandy was on it and all this kind of stuff. And wow. my, my mate, Alan McLeod, who's still my mate, taped it for me and I watched it in half-hour chunks in the classroom. Because you couldn't watch it at home? It wasn't. It would have been too much. I mean, Mum and Dad were really concerned that I would lose all my opportunities. I think my parents would really yeah. align with your Mum and Dad over there. Yeah. My Mum and Dad were really... Really worried about me coming out, especially because when I came out, I was acting. I wasn't really doing comedy yet. And, and you know, bringing up Ellen, Ellen, Ellen came out and, and lost, lost everything. everything. Yeah. You know, and Ellen was someone that I, you know, I wanted to be funny. I wanted to be an actress. And then I was like, oh, my God, amazing. I'm just like her. Oh, yeah. She's lost literally everything. Yeah. And, you know, Section 28 was all still right and, and all the backlash against HIV. So we're growing up with headlines that says gay people are dying and causing other gay people plague. to die. Gay plague. You know, that's bound to have an impact. Of course. So I remember Beth Jordash kissing Margaret on Brookside. On Brookside. That was all, you know, that was about 92, 93. Yes. And then she was crazy. Yeah. And she was so beautiful. And, that, you know, it's hard. <laughs> so you kind but of... That, I mean, it's something that I've spoken to friends about so much, the sort of the lack of... I think gay men's storylines, there's still not enough of them, but there are more gay men's storylines. But, I mean, for women, it, it is so much... And, and then she died. Yeah. <laughs> and she yeah. came and then she died. I watched Nanette last year, I'm sure you Yes, of course, Hannah Gadsby's. Yeah. It was just like, I don't think I've ever seen this yes. or me yes. or anything this close Yes, that hasn't either been derogatory or dismissive or... And then she died. Feeling seen is so... It's so important. And I just, I felt like there was so little of that when I was growing up. I felt, yeah, like there was no one like me. Um, so after that, you went to Oxford, mm -hmm. of course. Where else would you go? Well, it, well that wasn't, I mean, <laughs> it's because I had a really good English teacher when I was, when I was 13 who said to my mum and dad, well, of course, you must go to Oxford or Cambridge. And my mum and dad were like, That's oh, amazing. now, oh, now, ideas above. But of um, course, for your mum and dad people are saying these wonderful things about you and they're so excited for you and them thinking, yeah. oh, God, you're engaging with this part of your life might stop all of these... Like, it wasn't like you had a couple of opportunities to go to a, you know, to go to a, a college. It was like, this is a big deal. Don't throw it away. Yeah. And also at that stage, I think the, the common discourse around teenagers and sexuality was um, that it's a phase, that it'll pass, that it's a choice. You know, boys are a bit rubbish at this stage, Ruth. That doesn't mean you have to... Don't whatever you do, don't say it in your interview at Oxford. Don't mention it. Don't mention it. Don't mention yeah. it. Don't mention it. And that, you know, shame is shame is toxic. Oh, I remember Mum saying to me, Oh, you're not gonna talk about being gay on stage, are you in your stand up? Yeah. You're not gonna let that define you. And then I think for a long time I carried a shame being like I, I, people would ask me in interviews about my sexuality and I'd say, Ah, oh, it's just part of who I know at home. I'm not defined by it. And then I just carried that. And it's not I'm really I think it's really important to say I don't blame my mum I'm not having a go at my mum no because, and I'm not because she didn't know and mum didn't know any gay people no like she didn't know any lesbians she didn't know, she knew one or two gay there men there's no internet then either exactly yeah. and 
you know, now, you know, my mum's great. She knows loads of lesbians. My mum's my the biggest advocate. I think she's the only one who's ever read everything I've ever wrote at Stonewall and taken it on board and done something with it. You know, they're incredibly proud of me, but at that stage they were scared. I think it's really important that we allow people to have a journey and that we allow people to make mistakes we're so and learn. We're so mature. We're so mature. I mean, you've, you're wearing a Therapy. tie, I've got on a roll neck. I mean, it's very grown up. Yeah. It's very grown up. So what was Oxford like? Amazing. I mean, I know so, it's not cool to say you loved Oxford. But no, I've got friends I that loved really Oxford. Loved Oxford. <laughs> I've got friends um, that loved Oxford. Of course. I could be clever. I had a little room of my own. College life really suited me in a way that I think a big university wouldn't have suited me. So the thing about going to Oxford is that you're, you live in your college, and your college is where you. You're at St Hilda's. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, which is was was the old girls' college. So it's um it was a little community and. You have 12 people who do English, but you're in a year group of 100 who do lots of different subjects. OK. And it's, and it's great, and I love my tutors. most importantly, were there any other gays? There were so many gays. Amazing. So many gays. Um, men, women? Men, women, um, those who weren't sure. Yes. Uh, everything. Everything. So I have... So it's a different thing, and I don't know whether you had this when you were going out in Birmingham, but I remember I went to see a queer play... And there were lots of sort of lesbians that were actors or that made theatre. Nice. And I remember thinking, I'm not the only one. Mm. I'm not the only one that is maybe gay, but also into theatre or into the arts. Is that what it was like at Oxford when you yeah, found all these? Very much so. I think I think I was even aware then though that I was quite dikey. Okay. Compared, yeah, I think that was still. Were you always in a tie then? No, I was, but I was. You know, in I always had very short hair and yeah, could easily pass as a boy or a girl in those days and do you see it as sort of a type of armor no i think it's it is about where i'm most comfortable so right. any attempts i've made in the past and and as i got more senior at stonewall i used to have a lot of feedback about um feminizing and softening and oh really oh yeah 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 accessorizing oh accessorizing what yeah. so like turning up with a handbag well that's, <laughs> to be honest i started wearing ties when people started telling me to accessorize i was just like all right you want to see accessorize i'll show you accessories i mean my um, amazing girlfriend alice bought me a vivian westwood tie pin for christmas yeah. and she, she gave it to me she said i never thought i'd buy anyone a tie pin but it does make sense that i've bought the woman that's about to be my wife a tie pin exactly <laughs> So brooches, I tried brooches for a while and softer hair and ear and got my ears pierced and all this, and it just never, ever fits right. I don't, no. I, you know, I've not worn a skirt for decades. It just doesn't feel right. So I don't think it was about armour. I think it was about comfort. And also, you know, you're working really hard at Oxford and you kind of just want to be a bit comfy mm-hmm. and, you know, smoking rollies out your bedroom while you read Dante or whatever. Do you know what I mean? It was I all love part, it. All part of the look, isn't it? Yeah, definitely. So, so I was, and I'm not very trendy and I'm not very stylish or any of that stuff. So, I mean, you look great in a three piece suit, right? Yeah, I put it off, but absolutely. But it's, um, but it's, it's not. I'm not naturally, st- you know, you, like every time I, use, I see you, you look like cool. And my girlfriend Caroline always looks cool, right? So she's she's staged quite a lot of interventions with me. <laughs> it's not a natural. What was the uh, What was the most important intervention? The most important intervention was um, all my jumpers that are ten times too big had to go, and like kind of buying shirts from YMC rather than H and M, and just kind of. Slight, I, I I I really stand with slightly her. Slightly upping upping the game on my <laughs> shirt. I think- High jumpers, trousers, looks. So uh, I think she was right to do that. She, yeah. No, well, I don't think she'd have let me out this morning because basically I'm not working, so I'm here in much more comfy, cushy clothes. So when you came in, oh, for those that are listening, non from England or Wales, cushy means like cuddling in Welsh, yeah, doesn't like it? Kuchy, like comfy. Yeah. I love that word. Um, 
How it's spelt, though, absolute nightmare for a dyslexic. It is, I know. There's no vowels. <laughs> it's, is it C-W-Y-T-H? C-W-T-C-H. I mean... And it can apply to a room or a person or a jumper. It's non-sexual for the non-British I like that. Listeners. I like that a lot. Although it can lead to sex. Sure, but I mean, everything can, yeah, yeah. right? Um, I really get that, because now if I ever wear something that is that feels feminine, even though it would, I would always be in trousers, but that feels too feminine, I feel silly i feel like yeah. i've um i feel embarrassed yeah. i feel like someone's gonna say what are you wearing that hat for <laughs> like it's so it just doesn't it's not right yeah oh and if i wear a skirt i'll feel like gandalf do you know what i mean like what, <laughs> what but you that? must you must stop carrying around that massive staff yeah well no it's, that's it the... does pull focus but like there's a kind of it just doesn't feel right so at what point did you think oh because obviously you're doing english language and literature I guess you had an interest in writing. She'd been writing for Diva and doing things yeah. like that. But at what point did you think, oh, I want a career in activism or I want to be an activist? Well, student politics. Right, so OK. I was, I was president of my college and then president of the student union. So that was all advocacy. And was there something specific that made you go, I need to speak now, I need to, I need to have my voice heard, I need to have my opinion heard? Uh, yeah, I've never, I've never felt unable to do that though. Sure. And um, this is going to sound really random, but we had a Channel Four documentary crew with us for three years when I was at Oxford, um, who made a series called College Girls that went out on Sunday night at nine o'clock over six weeks, and they followed six girls yep. from eighteen to twenty-one, and I was kind of girl six in that. Okay. Um, so they were much more big personalities than me. I was kind of a peripheral character. Here's Ruth smoking out of her window again. Yeah. <laughs> She's um, read four books this week. Yeah, exactly. So, no, it was very much like that. Um, <laughs> they commissioned it before Big Brother started. So it's all right. filmed on film. Like, it's very expensive, beautifully shot, long Obviously lingering. in Oxford, which is in Oxford, beautiful. Yeah, so all these long lingering. And uh, one character's called, um, her name's Afshan, and she was a Pakistani girl from Newport who was training to be a doctor, Lucy, who was president of the union, the posh union and all that. So lots of different kinds of girls. Types of girls, yeah. yeah. And I was the president of the college, what's called the JCR, Junior Common Room. And I did a lot of advocating for St Hilda's to remain single sex. OK. And, and so that was that was a big campaigning point. Tuition fees had just been introduced, so that was a Oh, yes, of course. Point. And, of course, it was a, a kind of new political era because Tony Blair had got in. Yeah. So he, a, you know, a huge sense of hope, even for people that... You don't know. vote that way. Yeah, it was, it was, was a... A, a moment. Um, and I think that what we realise now as that kind of centre falls away, that those moments when you can achieve social justice, mm. everybody, everybody kind of wants to fire up. At the moment, we're going very right culturally, you know, and so there's no room for any of that. Mm. So, so that 97 to kind of 2010... That's where, you know, Stonewall secured all these different things. So it was a great yes. time to be an activist. Of course. Um, so, yeah, that's what I did. And, and so did you go straight to Stonewall from university? No, I did. Um, I fell in love. So I stayed in Oxford and worked at the, Classic. the university for a while while I kind of worked out what I was going to do. Then I worked for a little place called the Equality Challenge Unit that did higher education equality stuff. I went to Stonewall in 2005. So I was 25 as a little baby policy officer. And... Obviously, you spent 14 years at Stonewall and yeah. eventually got to the top job. Yeah. What was your ambition when you first, you know, when you were in policy? Was it was there a specific policy you wanted to get through or...? Yeah, I mean, I wanted to make resources so my mum and dad wouldn't have been lost. So I didn't do much legislation. I never have done much legislation campaigning. That's a kind of very different kind of role, really. My job was to change hearts and minds. Yes. So my team worked on education, schools work, health, criminal justice... Um, all those areas where there were 
profound inequalities. So I did the first bit of research into LGB kids who are still at school. So all the research up until then had been with adults yes. retrospectively. Mm -hmm. In 2006, I think we did a first survey where we actually talked to kids who were in school about their experiences then. And ever since then, we repeated that survey every three years. So, so by the time I left, you could see how... There's a lot of data to work Yeah, there's from. a lot of data. And, and it's, it sounds geeky, but it's the thing that changes the world. Well, of course. You know what yeah, I mean? absolutely. So, so you could see what that homophobic bullying was going down. You could see the type of people who experienced homophobic bullying. You could chart the impact that had on their educational attainment and mm -hmm. their whether they went to school, how they felt about themselves, and then you were able to chart what worked. So we also then did uh, surveys via YouGov with teachers about the extent to which they'd received training or not. Um, so lots of kind of work like that. Also did the biggest ever survey of lesbians um, yeah. about their health because lesbian health was completely ignored well, and neglected. I would love to talk to you a little bit about this because, you know, in LGBT plus it, within the community, it does often feel like the lesbian voice is lost. And I think it's something that people feel very concerned about. Was that something that you really wanted, Stonewater? Yeah. yeah. And it's something I took very seriously and continue to take very seriously. And I, I think that lesbians have got a lot to be angry about in terms of our profile and visibility. Yes. I think it's unfortunate that that anger is is directed at trans people as if it's trans people who are responsible for absolutely yes the erasure of lesbians no patriarchy is responsible for the erasure of lesbians and the, the continual dismissal and ignoring of our experiences our sexuality and our lived experiences you know it's not I completely trans agree fault. yeah um so yes it was something i was always aware of and what's interesting when i did the lesbian and bi women's health survey we, we did two years later we did the gay men's health survey mm -hmm. um we got so much more publicity for the gay one you know, nobody was interested in the lesbian one. And you were at Stonewall when, during the equal marriage. Yeah. It was just called the marriage bill, wasn't it? Yeah. Same-sex marriage. Same-sex marriage bill. So could you tell me a little bit about what the time was like at Stonewall sort of leading up to that and how yeah. that all happened? Well, it's a, it was an interesting one because it came out of a coalition government. Yes. So Nick Clegg. Nick Clegg. Um, uh, Lynn Featherston mm -hmm. uh, was a big advocate of this. And... The Lib Dems managed to get, and also David Cameron was very pro-it, mm. and Theresa May was pro-it. And as soon as you've got that, you can do anything. Yes. So you have to have that that level of support, and, and that level of support was there. And I think that Stonewall didn't expect it to come quite so soon. What was that day like in the office when you realised it was going to happen? Oh, it was amazing, but you don't you don't relax until the third reading's done. And uh, so, so when you're doing legislative campaigning like that, there's kind of two tracks. There's the PR side, mm -hmm. and how you kind of keep people involved, and there's the how do you make sure that the wrecking amendment that's coming from the backbench doesn't actually destroy by removing the word "and" on the second paragraph. So you kind of oh, get right, quite okay. you get here in a quite a kind of channel vision way. Yeah, and you're also thinking about. There's hundreds of thousands of people watching this and it affects their lives. So from a comms point of view, we did quite a lot of cute things. We did a really cute bingo card where people could watch the debate and when anybody said, you know, what about brothers and sisters getting married and uh, <laughs> abomination? What about, what about animals? What about, yeah, exactly. So so kind of that, that dual track of trying to... Because we, I think at Stonewall, we always took seriously that people were watching and, and that this was an opportunity for them to engage in democracy, yes. democratic processes. And do you feel that you're being... Well, like certainly when you're at the head of Stonewall, do you feel... I mean, you're, you're in the public eye... How do you find that? That must be quite tough being at the top of a charity because yeah. you have to take whatever people are 
shouting. And they do shout. They do shout, lot. yeah. Um, I think I think Stonewall, who you are, is as important as what you do. I think this bit that's a bit similar in The Lords, actually. Yeah, yeah. OK. So I took I took the fact that I was a youngish, dykey lesbian very seriously and, and realised the power that has mm-hmm. and, and tried to be aware of that. But one of the greatest strengths of Stonewall is that everybody's got a view on, on how things should be done and what should be done. Mm-hmm. And... Never. I mean, people talk now about how the, the community feels fractured. There has never been a moment where there is a nice, beautiful, unified yes. lesbian and gay movement. Yes. You know what I mean? Absolutely. Like, the, the kind of idea that we, we just kind of put down our arms and all form one happy family while we're racist to each other in gay clubs is just bizarre. Do you yeah, know what I mean? Absolutely. Like, we, we, are, we are not a yeah. coherent body of people. And, and I've been reading um, Derek Jarman's diaries. He's amazing. And he's so scathing about Stonewall when it was set up. So scathing. <laughs> Thing. You know, establishment, um, assimilationist organisation that is elitist and isn't about a grassroots queer rights activist movement. So it's not new, but it can feel pretty sharp, I think. Yeah, I bet. Think. And I was wondering whether you feel like, I mean, you said in sort of many interviews uh, yourself that you're sort of a professional gay. Yeah. And you sort not of. Not anymore. I'm well, no. Yeah. No, you're an unprofessional gay. I'm unprofessional gay. Yeah. Um, but you're, you know, and that you're sort of very out and uh, in your words, dikey. Do you feel like you have to come out as a Christian? Yeah. Is that something that... Are people surprised by that? Oh, always, constantly. Um, and it's and again, it's not very cool, is it? It's not the done thing. And I didn't really... It was one of those things that I that it was was, was in the background. And it's only because I, I gave an interview and I was a junior member of staff. I was on press phone duty. Right. Really hung over one morning. <laughs> and someone phoned and said, oh, um, they're cancelling the Catholic masses for gay people in Soho does Stonewall have a view and I went it's a real shame that Catholic Mass is being cancelled because it's hard for gay people and they someone said oh there's no such thing as gay Catholics and I went, well I'm Catholic so it's fine so Deputy Director of Public Affairs at Stonewall is Catholic nobody gives a damn as soon as I became CEO it was like practising Catholic takes over at Stonewall she's going to basically destroy the world and I was like kid I don't I don't know enough about this you know I don't I don't have enough chat to do that as it, from a professional activism point of view. Yeah. And sort of had a moment of, like, I could either do a Peter and deny it all or lean into it and talk about it. And the reality is that it does shape my philosophy and my way of, of working and my values and how I think about the world. So, and it's an area where we need more bridges, not walls. You Absolutely. Know, the Christian church has a huge amount to answer for in the harm and destruction it causes women and LGBT people and minorities of all sorts. And if I can do something to try and bring that together a bit better, then I should. And you've just sort of put together a book. Yeah, it's coming out in May. It's called Queer Prophets. Okay. So um, when I announced I was resigning from Stonewall, because of the 14 years I've seen... I got quite a lot of, would you like to write the history of gay rights? And I was like, no, I don't want to write the history of gay rights. I don't want to ever think about gay rights ever again. Um, I'd like a break. Um, but what I said to Harper Collins is, look, what I will do is bring together a group of people who are LGBT and Christian from across the globe, and we can kind of create a platform for that. So that's what we've done. We've brought together 21 people. Oh, wow. And so what... Who? You know, what kind of people? Well, Jeanette Winston had to be in it because she's still like the most important woman in my life apart from my girlfriend okay yeah, um, good to know Dustin Lance Black but also normal people yes so, um, people who are basically working their way out of Christian faith in Africa in America in all sorts of different traditions 
as a trans guy who is uh, training to be a minister. Oh, wow. How interesting. Another guy who's trans who's just found God quite suddenly and, and what that means to him and how he navigates that. So, And there's people in that book who don't s- have faith and have rejected it. Yes. Why? So it's a rich, rich book. And like, it must be so difficult to be aligned with a group of people and for them to say, no, this isn't for you. Mm. We're going to decide whether you're allowed this or not. Well, it's so it's so far removed from even the basic tenets of the New Testament. It's, yeah. it's laughable. Um, so, a group of people who decide that they can arbitrate who should be close to God or not is such an, an incompatible, incongruent facet yeah. of faith that it's if if I can't call that out, then there's something wrong. Then who can? Yeah. Um, so you've uh, you've achieved a lot, I think. As oh, I mean, I, oh yeah, of course. I mean, you're really furrowing your brow, but I mean, well, you did a lot at Stonewall. Stonewall does a lot. I was very Absolutely. lucky to lead it. Yes, but I think it needs someone that's very good at steering the ship. Well, I hope I did all right. I'm I sure think I, you did amazing. Sure I made lots of mistakes. I'm sure we're all constantly making lots of mistakes. I've probably made five in the last ten minutes. <laughs> it's fine. Don't worry. Um, but what do you what do you want to do next? Well, you're young. Yeah, I'm no. young, I'm young. Um, so, well, I'm 40 in a month, actually. So me and my partner, Caroline, run a business called mm-hmm. Deeds and Words, and we try and help organisations put our values more at centre, which is about treating people well and finding ways to enable people to bring their whole selves and, and be a bit thoughtful about how that's done, rather than, here's top ten tips and let's do some and unconscious bias training. And yeah. let me tell you that you're a very naughty boy because you don't understand the words. So so much more people-centred approaches. And that's about us trying to do our best to make the world a better place, really. And the Lords is, is really important. And there's two ways of doing that. There's three ways of doing the Lords. The one, one way is not turn up at all. And right. If you don't turn up, you don't get paid. So kind of... People get outraged about that, but I'm pretty relaxed about it. The okay. second way is to go in and singularly pursue an issue that's important to you. And okay. there are some amazing people in the Lords who you just think, my God. Like, So I was talking to a woman called uh, Beban Kidron, who is just the most amazing woman ever. Yes. So so you people will know her mainly as the director of Bridget Jones's Diary. So I'm yes. like, hi, director of Bridget Jones's <laughs> Diary. Yes, no, I gave all that up because I'm deeply concerned about child exploitation on the internet and I've dedicated and I came into the Lords in order to change the world in terms of internet safety for children. Now I'm a leading international expert on, uh, and I advise the UN on internet safety. I was like, hello. <laughs> um, so there's kind of people in the Lords who are just doing their thing and are amazing. And then there are people who scrutinise legislation and, and I will, I will, I'm sure, pursue agendas, but I also believe in scrutinising legislation. I believe yeah. in a second chamber. It's really important to our democracy. And did you... Was there any arming and ahhing about becoming a member of the Absolutely. House of Lords? Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Like, is this what I want to do? Well, is it what we want to do? Because, of course, it's for Caroline as well. Does she get a title? No, because we're girls. <sighs> So if you're a woman in the Lords, your husband doesn't get a title. And if you're a same-sex couple, your partner doesn't get a title. The only person who gets a title are male Lords who've got wives. And they become ladies. And they become ladies. But Caroline is is absolutely fine with that and has no intention whatsoever of pursuing a campaign where that changes. Um, but it has an impact on us. And it has of an course. impact on And it has an impact on um, time and, you know, what is the role of a second chamber and should it be unelected? conversations yeah and the fact that we work together and when we go in a room 
people see me before they see her. Yeah, that's Actually, Caroline's tough. much smarter than me and much better at this. She's an anthropologist. She understands how to make groups work. I know how to make speeches. Do you know what I mean? They should be oh, off the cuff, me. most importantly. Off the cuff, yes. Yeah. So, so it's, it, it had an impact on our... It has an impact. And it we means that you're still it. being sort of publicly out. Yeah. yeah. And when I decided to leave Stonewall, I, I did quite an important self-journey really about how is it going to be to give up some of that and what does that mean and kind of I'm ready to have an equal partnership where my ego is less because it is about ego sometimes and less public role and that'll be nice because the public role is hard sometimes. yes I can imagine that and I'm ready and then they went and would you like to be a baroness and I was like yes <laughs> I mean and it's not about ego but yeah okay thanks um so so it is it is a decision in all sorts of levels and it's a responsibility in a public service and I take that very seriously absolutely okay my final question so if you could sort of telephone 13 year old Ruth in Cardiff reading the well of loneliness sort of realizing who she was in the world and feeling maybe a bit scared about it what advice would you give her I'd tell her to not worry too much and to let it let it just come. Don't force it too much. You know, there was a there was a real I felt real need to get it all sorted and tidy. Oh me too. And, it, and I could have really, just yeah. I could have just let it be a bit and it still would have been okay. That's it. Thank you very much, Ruth. This has been fascinating. Thanks very much. There we are, my chat with the brilliant Baroness Ruth Hunt, or or just Ruth. Uh, I love chatting to her. I'm sure that you heard that from the excitement in my voice. It was brilliant to chat to someone who I think has done so much work to improve the life of LGBTQ plus people in this country. There are so many things I'm afforded in my life because of groups like Stonewall, the work that's come before. You know, I'm getting married this year. Uh, Well, I was getting married in a month and a bit. I'm now not getting married in a month and a bit, but I am engaged and we might be getting married this year or we might be getting married next year because everything's on hold because of the coronavirus. But, I mean, I wouldn't be able to do that if people hadn't done that activism work, if those charities didn't exist. That is what, you know, pushes the government and parliament to make those changes to the law. And uh, it was just great to, to be with Ruth and to hear about her work. And I really hope that you enjoyed it as much as I did. Once again, I am going to ask you if you want to get in touch with me, if you want to tell me your coming out story or tell me a story that that you feel like hasn't been shared before, please, please do. The email is hello at outwithsusieruffle.com. Get in touch with me. Tell me what you'd like to share. If you don't want to share anything, but you just want to say you're enjoying the podcast, I'm loving receiving those emails too. As ever, if you enjoyed it, please tweet about it. Instagram, tell your friends, tell your family. I was delighted actually, people got in touch with me to tell me that they'd sent it to their parents, their straight parents, the episode with uh, Dustin. And so I was delighted to hear that. So um, thanks, thanks for letting me know that. Tell everyone, rate and review it on um, Apple and that will help more people find it and it will also help me make series two. That's it from me. Thanks again for listening. I hope that you enjoyed the show and... I'll see you next week for another episode of Out with Susie Ruffle. But until then, see ya. (laughs) 